Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm talking to a man who has planted over two and a half million trees in his lifetime. Greg Nolan worked in the tree planting business for 27 years, both in Alberta and the remote stretches of British Columbia. He started as a 19-year-old kid, braved grizzly bears and black flies, along with hurricanes and some of the most ridiculous planting circumstances imaginable. But not only that, he got good at it. Insanely good. Good enough to become what's known as a highballer in tree planting circles, which is also the title of his first book. It is chock full of tales, and he is quite the storyteller. Here's his story. Well, Greg, maybe let's start with some practical terms uh, just to get a, a bit of a lay of the land. Uh, what makes a highballer, and what are the characteristics of a highballer? Good question. Yeah, a highballer is a high-production tree planter. Um, if the average on a tree planting crew is, let's say, 1,000 to 1,200 trees per day, mm -hmm. a highballer will typically plant anywhere from 100 to 150% more than that. So they will stand out production-wise. <laughs> so a highballer, those are the ones that are... Uh, the top dogs, if you will, on a tree planting crew are the ones who are really raking in the, the money compared to uh, perhaps the average tree planter. Correct. And <laughs> a lot of characteristics uh, go with that uh, particular status. Uh, oftentimes, uh, very psychotic. It's, uh... <laughs> yeah. So if, if, if that's the, the gist of uh, practically what separates a high baller from an average tree planter, just in terms of sheer numbers... Uh, what are the sorts of personality types that comprise someone who will be able to pound in 100 to 150% more trees in a day? Yeah, we're, we're talking about 2,000 to 2,500 trees per day on good ground in the interior uh, that you'll find on interior type clear cuts. Uh, the high baller is very competitive. Very often he's athletic or she find that a lot of the uh, the high ballers that I've encountered that I've planted with and uh, supervised on my own crews and with my own company uh, were very often female. And uh, these are people that uh, they possess that athleticism, uh, a really high degree of competitiveness, but uh, they also have to sort of authenticate a type of technique and style that incorporates all of the above plus finesse. Mm. It's uh, it's almost if you watch a highballer on the slopes, uh, a good one will look like he's practicing tai chi. There's a an art to it, a beauty to it, perhaps. There really is. There's a fluidity of motion, uh, conservation of motion. You might expect a highballer to be, you know, a real pounder, uh, big hulky guy, just, uh, you know, swinging his shovel and uh, scraping at the ground and uh, pounding trees in left, right, and center. It's nothing like that. It's uh, it's conservation of movement. It's a it's a very finesse job. Mm, efficiency, then, yeah. Exactly. Uh, you were 19 years old when you started tree planting. What what was it about the job that appealed to you then? 
Well, it was kind of a mistake that I ended up as a tree planter. I was fresh out of high school and I was uh, I was looking for any excuse to avoid post-secondary education. Mm. And uh, I came from a, a very academically inclined uh, family. They all had uh, expectations of me and I, I was the youngest. I was the black sheep and I wanted nothing to do with their designs. Mm. And uh my older sister was also a bit of a, a black sheep um, of the family, and uh, she was coupled with a tree planting contractor. And I had heard the stories about, uh, you know, the adventures that they had uh, gotten themselves into and uh, the remote uh, areas that they traveled to. And that really appealed to me. And I, um, I asked my sister to twist uh, her boyfriend's arm and get me on the crew. And she twisted hard enough, and I ended up on his rookie crew. So you were the youngest of five siblings, correct? Uh, That's right. In, in broad terms, what were your other siblings like uh, compared to if you, be, you being the black sheep and, and other of your sisters uh, being the black sheep in that way? Well, there was a huge um, age difference between us. Um, between me and my oldest sister, there was a good 16 years, I believe. Mm -hmm. So she was on her way out the door when I was still in diapers almost, I guess. Uh, but uh, the age difference between the sister that I referred to that was the other black sheep, uh, that was more like 13 years. And uh, she was my hero. Um, she came for regular visits. I think she left home when she was uh, 14 years old. She skipped four or five grades in school. Mm -hmm. And uh, very independent-minded, uh, very adventurous. And I sort of latched on to that adventurous spirit uh, through her. She's the one who's traveling back and forth to Bali and, uh, and seeing the world, correct? That's right. Yeah. Currently, she lives between southern Spain, Bali, and Hong Kong. Okay. So what, what was it about her spirit or about uh, her lifestyle that, uh, that called to you? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, it all goes back to a person's childhood, right? We all, uh, we all live through different things, different scenarios. And, and I don't mind saying that mine was pretty rough. All of our, ours was pretty rough. And I, as a kid, um, I guess starting in preschool, maybe even a little earlier, had this tendency to run away from home. And I was serious. I used to prepare myself. I'd bring food. I'd bring extra clothes. And they would find me 10, 15 miles outside the city limits where I lived. The RCMP would pick me up in the middle of the night just walking aimlessly. I was looking for a better life. You know, I was looking for adventure. I was mm -hmm. looking for some kind of wonderland. So it started very early on. Maybe it's in my DNA. I don't know. <laughs> so your sister gets you on to the street planting crew. Uh, you've twisted her arm enough uh, and, and, and it works. So your first summer tree planting, you're given this this goal, right? You're given two weeks to hit a benchmark of a thousand trees per day. You've you've talked about that as being sort of the the average, let's say, of what a tree planter might put in. Uh, how does that look in practical terms? Uh, you know, a thousand trees, let's say, compared to what uh, you were able to do in those first, you know, that first day or two of tree planting. Yeah, it was a lofty goal. It, uh, for the entire rookie crew, there were six of us, uh, it was inconceivable. Um, we worked hard that, that very first day 
um, as rookies. And I believe my first day I put in 90 trees and I was the high baller on the rookie crew. Everyone else was, you know, packed in around 50 trees. Uh-huh. So, so what are you thinking uh, <laughs> as, as you as you have this goal of a thousand and you're at 93? It was impossible. I mean, uh, we all walked uh, back to camp at the end of that first day. These were the days, the really rare days when you could camp in the middle of a large clear cut and literally walk to work every day. Hmm. And uh, as we were walking back, yeah, our, our entire conversation for the entire 20 minutes uh, was just incredulity. We couldn't uh, couldn't believe that they had put that goal in front of us because there was just no way we were going to hit it. At least in, that's how we felt in the first day. What is the, there must be some sort of attrition rate, you know, for, for people who think that tree planting might be their thing and then decide very quickly that they're not cut out for it. Uh, what, what typically would be the percentage or number of people on a crew that you might expect to lose uh, within, you know, short order? Yeah, that's a good question. It really depends on how the contractor shortlists the crew. Um, if they interview the individuals personally, rather than just taking applications that, you know, state that they've had camping experience and that they hike and they love to cycle. If they actually sit down with the individual, you can usually catch on right away uh, whether they're cut out for the job. And, uh, you know, you're looking for people that really concentrate on everything you're telling them and, and they consider what you're telling them. You're trying to warn them, you know, of all the uh, potential fit, uh, pitfalls that they're going to face. Mm -hmm. And if they just write them off and say, oh, yeah, I've done that before, blah, blah. Yeah, you're, you're probably going to want to put those guys on the sidelines. Uh, <laughs> but the people that, people that really, really uh, listen to what you're saying and, uh, you know, consider the warnings, um, those are the people that I shortlist personally when I'm interviewing people. And you, you also have to sort of size them up physiologically. Um, but mind you, that's not always the greatest indicator either. I, uh, there is one character in the book, uh, this very skinny girl that was on one of my training crews, one of my university training crews in the interior, and everybody on the crew had written her off, but she rose to the top of the heap in terms of production um, at the end of the day. So it, that's a tough one, but right. you can usually size them up uh, by, you know, personal interviews. Yeah, yeah. What does the rest of a, a crew look like? You know, if the highballers are the hyper-competitive uh, ones, the maniacal ones, what, uh, what does a broader tree planting crew look like? What kind of walks of life are people coming from? Yeah, you're looking at uh, a very educated lot, actually. Um, if we're talking about the interior, uh, they are primarily students that, uh, um, you know, they have greater expectations than, uh, planting trees. Uh, but they also have that, uh, dedication towards any task and uh but uh, there is one crew that i try to break down um personality wise in the book where i know that we had several nuclear physicists to be on the crew uh, -huh. uh i think there is an eye surgeon there are a couple orthodontists there are immigrants from around the world there was a 
Vietnam vet that had seen action. Um, yeah, a real melting pot of uh, culture and personalities. There was even a person on the crew that was there undercover. She was uh, doing a study, a psychological study, on the impact of remote locations and hard work mm-hmm. on people clustered together in a tight community. And I believe <laughs> that paper was actually published and circulated around the world, I believe. Incredible. Is there, uh, is there some sort of career that tree planters typically tend to, to gravitate towards post-tree uh, planting? Does it self-select for a certain type of person in that way? That's a really good question too. Gosh, I've uh, I need to uh, sort of research that a little bit. <laughs> I'm asking yeah. you. I'm asking you demographical questions that uh, it's just a uh, purely out of curiosity. But uh, no, that's good. Yeah. One. Um, that's a really good. One. What kind of trees are you dealing with? Like what? What are the trees that you're actually planting? Yeah, typically we follow in behind the uh, timber companies that harvest. And they are generally after the conifers, the, uh, depending on the location, uh, you know, the fir, the cedars, the, uh, the spruce, uh, the hemlocks, balsams, generally conifers. And what does a typical day look like? You know, if you were to take me through a day from the moment you wake up on the job until, you know, your head hits the pillow again, what, what's sort of the cadence of a, a tree planting day? It depends on the season. It depends on the location. Um, A hardcore tree planter like myself would actually start the season in January or February on the coast during storm season. Mm. And um, the companies that I preferred to work with were those that chose remote locales that were only accessible by air or water, such as the mainland inlets. Mm or the far reaches of um, the west side of Vancouver Island and uh, storm season. So, gosh, you know, you would wake up in the morning to horizontal rain, knowing that would continue throughout the day and possibly for days, if not weeks on end without, uh, without let up. Uh-huh. So psychologically, it was, it was really hard at the beginning of the season uh, working in those locations. As you migrate to the interior, the interior generally opens up, becomes free of snow around uh, mid-April, let's say. That's uh, for the low elevation Uh ground. So we would migrate out to the interior. We'd set up a remote tree planting camp, but it's still early in the season. So you wake up in the morning. uh, There's frost on the ground. Gosh, there's frost on your tent. There's frost on your sleeping bag early (laughs) in the season. And it is really hard uh, just getting out of your sleeping bag and climbing into clothes. And and you make your way towards the Quonset hut, which is where it's a large tent where everyone eats. And uh, the frost is crunching below your feet. It's dark. It's cold. And you... You know, you get your lunch together, you have a bit of breakfast, and you mobilize for the clear cuts that you're going to be working on, and it's still dark. You get dropped off in the morning at your area, and it's still, well, you're getting some light, but uh, challenging psychologically. Mm-hmm. Now, now, if you start the season early in uh, in the winter, say January, February, by the time you hit the middle of the interior season, which is May, June, you've already logged about 
80 days, maybe 90 days, and uh, mentally and psychologically, you've already, you've hit the wall. Mm -hmm. And that's when a lot of people drop out. So the dog days of summer, and that's, that's when you're faced with intense heat and intense bugs. And um, you're drinking more water than is humanly possible, freakishly huge amounts of water, uh, just to stay hydrated. And uh, that's when one day starts to blur into the next. Uh -huh. And that's when it gets really hard for guys like me is, is you have this status on a crew as a highballing tree planter. But, uh, you know, by the end of a, a single tree planting day, you're counting on a fifth or sixth wind to push you over the top to, you know, attain that goal of having top status. Mm -hmm. That's why I mentioned earlier, you have to be somewhat psychotic to be a, uh, a highballing tree planter. Right. Where does the water get stored? On like, you're not, you're not carrying uh, extra water bottles with you or on a backpack, are you? Imagine if you're going to drink that much water, you, you've got to have somewhere to keep it while you're planting. That's right. Yeah. Typically on a, on a um, primary setting that you uh, can drive into and set up individual tree caches, for individual planters, uh, you store it there along with where the trees are cached. So you'll have a large silvacool tarp. It's made out of a, a space age material that keeps things cool. Um, you can also take water with you on individual runs. A run is where you load up your trees with, uh, you know, uh, a certain number of trees that you need to accomplish a certain task for that part of the day. And you can carry water with you and then stash it along the way and pick it up as you need it. On helicopter settings, it's a, it's a little bit trickier because you're limited to one landing pad. And so generally everything is, uh, is cached right there. So you have to come back for it. Mm. The conditions you mentioned, you know, horizontal rain, frost on the tent in the morning, uh, just bitter cold, what are the tricks for getting through a day like that, for making the hours go faster as you're planting? You really don't need a lot of tricks to make time fly when you're planting. If you're in motion and you stay in motion, um, okay, one trick is when it's raining, you don't stop. Uh, the moment you stop and decide to find a truck to have yourself a nice, comfortable lunch, it's going to be really hard extricating yourself from the truck to get back into that. It's uh, So what I would do personally is I would come back after a run, after planting two or 300 trees, uh, fill my bags with trees and pace back and forth with uh, an apple or some crackers and just uh, power them down and uh, throw my bags back over my shoulders and head back up the mountain. So staying in motion. Uh -huh. And I, I tell you, an entire nine, 10 hours blows by in seconds. Wow. Are you playing music as well, I'm imagining, as you're, as you're uh, putting in these trees? Yeah, I used to. I used to, I used to use a Sony uh, Auto Reverse Walkman. And uh, yeah, there were days when I would rarely hear anything but music, except when I changed tapes. Uh -huh. We used tapes back then. Uh, countless examples where I would be 
on a road walking back towards the cash and there would be an XL350 diesel truck right behind me. Yeah. The guy driving <laughs> it, knowing that I was wired for sound, so he would see how close he could get to me before I'd actually notice him. But yeah, I blocked out everything with music for a good part of my career. What, uh, what was the soundtrack for those seasons? Mm. Yeah, I've I've got uh, I've got this really good bear story that I am going to recount in Highballer Two, um, where I was playing Stan Ridgeway. Uh, he was in a band called uh, Oh Gosh uh, Mexican Radio was their their big song back in the day. Anyway, I was listening to Stan Ridgeway's uh, Just Drive. She said. And uh, and the song was sort of fading out, and there was that just that brief moment between songs where there was a bit of silence, and uh, and I uh, out of the corner of my eye spotted a silver tip grizzly about fifty meters away, heading right at me. <laughs> uh, the grizzly bears. What are you most worried about from a threat perspective as you're planting? Is it the weather? Is it the trees falling? Is it the bears? Is it any one of those at any given time? Well, it's a combination. And and again, you know, it depends on what the setting is. Uh, if it's early in the season, um, the coastal in, inlets are really unique. Uh, they have their own microsystems and many hurricanes can blow up at any time and, uh, and hit you. And if you're up on the slopes, um, you know, the typical clear cut has a tree line. And uh, very often it is populated by large mature trees. And uh, when you get hit by one of these mini storms, the squalls that come out of it uh, cause the timber to twist and contort and bend and, and crack and occasionally uh, break off and crash to the ground around you. Mm -hmm. And these... This is back in the day when there were really no controls. We had no government oversight. WCB mm -hmm. wasn't looking over us. Certainly the timber companies weren't looking over us. We were completely on, on our own. And when these storm systems developed, we planted right through them. And we had repu good reputations for planting in any kind of situation, environment, uh, weather event. And uh, so you would have, as a planter, you'd have one eye on the ground and one on the sky looking at this. There's nothing more frightening than, than seeing the canopy of a mature stand twisting and contorting above you. Mm -hmm. And so you would really have to time, uh, you know, your, your trees because every single square inch of your land has to get planted. Failure to do so um, gets you in trouble. So we were forced to work under those conditions. And uh, that, was, uh, that was one element that created terror yeah. uh, among us. The bears are a completely different story. Very often we'd encounter them on the block. Uh, but if it was a heli setting, I'd have a radio and I'd be able to call in the helicopter pilot and uh, he would deal with it just by chasing it off. But, uh, you know, lying in your tent in the middle of the night, on a wildlife corridor, not knowing that it's a wildlife corridor, grizzly corridor, let's call it. Mm -hmm. And you hear motion, you know, outside your tent in the middle of the night, and you know it's a large mammal. Those are terrifying uh, incidents. Mm. 
one of the most memorable parts of your book, uh, Highballer, to me was uh, your planting and uh, one of your tree planting uh, friends just brought his dog with him. And the dog, uh, I forget the dog's name, it, it might have been Lady that was chasing. Yeah. Uh, Lady was chasing <laughs> grizzly bears away. And just think of uh, an animal so much smaller than a grizzly being able to frighten a grizzly like that or chase it off uh, just yeah. seems so outlandish to imagine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what's the most uh, harrowing of run-ins that you've had with a grizzly or a black bear through the years or the most, uh, uh, you know, memorable? There's a lot of experiences that are sort of at the top of the heap in that regard. Um, there is one event that I, I recount, I think it's in chapter four, it's called the Grizzly Corridor, where a friend and I are actually confronted by a large silver tip grizzly, very territorial grizzly. And um, most events, most encounters last seconds, maybe mm -hmm. 10, 15 seconds. This was drawn out for about three or four minutes. That's where Man, you're really living in the moment when you have a massive silver tip grizzly about to tear you to shreds. And this bear confronted both of us. I was a little bit higher up on a ledge, so I was uh, I was within you know its zone of terror. But my friend was um, just, the, the bear was just feet from him and was about to launch just a horrible uh, mauling when. Just did crazy timing, almost like a movie. Uh, this dog that you refer to, Lady, <laughs> with a Doberman pincher and a small one for the breed, very small. She just came out of nowhere and uh, crossed the creek and started running these incredible half circles around the bear. And that's that's the thing about a dog like that. An incredi incredibly agile dog can cause confusion. Um, and this bear went from... Um, just a fierceness unlike anything I had ever seen to abject bewilderment as soon as Lady entered the fray. It just didn't know <laughs> what to do. And uh, that was a crazy scene. Lady got the upper hand. She chased that bear for an hour up into the timber and, uh, you know, came back exhausted, sweaty. A broken nail, I think that's what she had. That was the only damage. Yeah. And that that played out on that one 10-day contract. That played out every single day. Not a close encounter like that, but she patrolled the beach, and she when she caught a scent, she was off into the timber chasing the bear down, yeah. making sure it uh, kept its distance. Invaluable protection on a job like that to have. Uh, Incredible. That, yeah. yeah. I owe my life to that dog. <laughs> Uh, one thing we haven't spoken about yet is the bugs. I, I imagine uh, bugs, depending on the season, could be uh, quite a pest as well. What's the worst place to get bitten by a bug? Yeah, the worst place. There, there's that one spot around your eye. and I, I'm not sure if it's a nerve ending or some sort of a gland, but all it takes is just one black fly to nail you in that one spot and your eye slams shut for a week mm. and and it swells over and it it's you emerge at the end of the day looking like you just walked off the set of a zombie movie or something <laughs> was it black flies uh that were worst for you was it uh, mosquitoes was it horse flies uh what proved the most bothersome 
Yeah, all of the above. Um, they would start in the morning, um, if memory serves, with hordes of mosquitoes. And then when it started to warm up, the black flies would join them. Uh, hordes of them. And then when you were in the heat of the day, the deer flies and the horse flies would start in. And uh, I think they were the worst because uh, they were the most intimidating mm. uh, because they dive bomb you. And if they do find, you know, an open piece of flesh on your body, they hacksaw that little chunk off and fly away. Uh, but in the interior settings, you wouldn't just have one or two bothering you. You'd have hundreds. Yeah. And uh, very difficult to deal with psychologically. And we all had our own ways of, of dealing with it and uh, some very clever ways too. Uh -huh. So uh, how, do, how do you deal with them? Well, um, I used to visit thrift stores when I had breaks and I was able to get into town and I would buy dress shirts, cotton dress shirts. And so you're covered, you know, basically your upper torso is completely covered. Mm -hmm. And uh, you apply 100% DEET to all the seams. Uh, I would fashion sort of like a, an Arab type headdress as well, so that my head, mm -hmm. forehead, neck were covered. And I would saturate that in DEET as well. Uh, I Only when it got you know incredibly bad would I apply the, the DEET to my skin. Uh -huh. And the same with your, uh, your lower half, you, I would always have, uh, cotton pants, white. And, uh, so you were basically dressed from head to toe. Yeah. So all that was left was your face. And, um, I had an uncle that was a general practitioner. He used to give me these surgeons masks. So I, I tried a combination <laughs> of those and, you know, the netting, but all of that seemed to get in the way. So that was the one area of your body that always... I left exposed anyways. Mm. And the white clothing, is that because of the heat or is that because of uh, bugs being more drawn to darker colors? Well, I experimented and, and I think they were less attracted to those lighter colors, but it was also because of the heat. And the mm -hmm. dress shirts, I, I used to sweat profusely. Once they became saturated with sweat, if you had any kind of a breeze, uh, that light fabric would brush up against your bare skin and almost chill you. So it had that effect as well. <laughs> uh, you mentioned going into town uh, on days off uh, and thrift shopping. Uh, in the book, you write about how a tree planting crew is kind of like the circus coming into town and not always, <laughs> and in fact, often uh, unwelcome in the communities that you pass through. Uh, what what kind of reception uh, did you get from, from locals in the different towns <laughs> that you would go through? Well, the one thing that we had that benefited the town is we were often flush with cash. Right. So, yeah. And, you know, very often we would emerge from a tree planting setting um, after four weeks. So we were anxious to, uh, to spend money. Um, you know, the, the small little pizza joints in town probably benefited the, the best, uh, the all you could eat buffet Chinese food restaurants mm -hmm. suffered the worst because of our appetites. I mean, <laughs> uh, as planters, we're expending uh, more calories in a day than a marathon runner will in a full race. Mm -hmm. Science has proven that. And you need to eat, you need to make that up every single day. And I'd be surprised if I 
didn't in one sitting consume 5,000 calories as a wow. bare minimum. Wow. So yeah, um, they really appreciated us there for the most part uh, with the companies that I worked with because we were pretty mature. We were well-behaved. Uh, but a lot of tree planting companies, and I had this conversation um, with a radio host uh, recently who was a tree planter who worked with a company where um, they would break out into fights as soon as they arrived into town. And I, you know, it could have been over anything, but it was kind of a, uh, a less evolved uh, group of individuals, let's say. So it really depended on what the company was. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, we were all hippies right. and, uh, you know, we would form, not me personally, but uh, we would form drum circles in front of mm, health food stores and and all you can eat buffets. And we'd jaywalk across the streets, uh, forcing traffic to grind to a halt. And when we arrived, we felt we owned the place. So there was this this pervasive arrogance there that I know the community felt. Uh huh. If you're eating 5,000 calories, uh, what does a meal look like? I'm imagining that dinner is probably the biggest meal of a day uh, while you're tree planting. What what are you uh, you know putting into yourself uh, over dinner time? What would a typical meal look like? Yeah. Well, a good tree planting contractor won't just hire a cook. Um, they'll hire a chef, and uh, they will expose you to ethnic nights. You know, Greek, uh, Indian. Uh, Mexican, and very often it would be accompanied uh, with the appropriate music. So you would always start off with, uh, you know, the lighter fare. There would always be hors d'oeuvres. As soon as you arrive back in camp at the end of the day, there would be soup on or and or a platter of beautiful hors d'oeuvres. And then your entrees would be numerous. You'd have, uh, you know, a good four or five course meal. And, um, you know, typically like uh, Italian fare, you'd have your vegetarian and meat lasagnas, but you'd also have eggplant parmesan. Um, you would have, uh, you know, a number of uh, salads, Greek salad or uh, Caesar salad, obviously. Uh-huh. Um, um, pizzas. Uh, it was just uh, as much as you could possibly eat as well. And a guy like me would uh, fill up a bag after supper so that I didn't have to make a lunch you know, the next morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was really wonderful the way that they treated us. <laughs> In your quest of being the top producer, the highballer among highballers in, in your camp, uh, there were times when you would be planting trees, uh, both before others got onto the block, but also well after others had packed it in. Um, mm-hmm. What is it like being on a block without anybody else around? Yeah, that was a wonderful freedom that was afforded to me. Um, That will never happen today. Um, There are just too many controls. You need to have a first aider on the block uh, at all times if there are personnel working. Uh, You need to have a truck, a radio. Back in those days, I was able to walk to the block early in the morning and start an hour or two before the full crew um, made their way on or... I would be left uh, um, an ATV at the end of the day so that I could stay a couple hours late. And um, I uh, go into great detail about um, the atmosphere of the 
cut block after everyone left, after the last taillights, the truck disappeared below the road. And that was a special time. It's when you, you took in everything. Um, you know, the wind, uh, the water coursing under your feet, uh, the birds of prey overhead. You could hear the air wrapping around their wings. It all started to sort of close in on you. And you developed this just incredible sense of uh, almost like a loneliness. Um, but you're also extremely aware that you're in the middle of bear country. And generally in the evening, uh, especially on a clear-cut setting that tree planters have just abandoned, having left, you know, bits of, you know, lunch around their caches, uh, evidence of food, smells, they would start to come out of the timberline and, uh, you know, visit the caches. So you would start to see wildlife, and you're not really prepared to deal with it should it confront you because mm -hmm. – uh, Back in those days, I didn't pack a rifle uh, when I pla planted trees. Nobody did. And it was kind of before the days of bear bangers and bear spray as well. So, um, uh, yeah, those feelings of loneliness, of being alone, fear, and a real preparedness mm -hmm. for, you know, if you saw a large bear emerge from the timberline, it might be a good time to make your way back to camp. Kind of uh, you mentioned a couple times now just the subtle changes and maybe not so subtle between uh, what tree planting was like in the 80s and how it uh, looks today. Are those changes uh, for the better, for worse, a mix of both? Well, they are for the better, for sure, from a, a safety standpoint. Um, for instance, if there is a certain amount of rainfall within a certain period of time, say 24 hours, the entire division that you're working in is shut down, including the road systems, um, which is good because, uh, you know, landslides can occur. And if you're caught in one, that's it. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it also it's it's bad in some ways, too, because you're not exposed to that same level of adventure that we were exposed to back then. Mm. And working in, you know, a really violent weather event, a storm, uh, there, was, there was never a dull moment in the time that you were working in it. You know, you're watching your friends in the area over a couple hundred meters away get blown on their butt from a wind gust and you're screaming off in the distance and above you a tree comes down, a mature tree crashes to the ground and throws off debris in all directions. Uh, it, it was just such an event, it was fantastic. Hmm. And uh, yeah, you, you don't see that today. And in some ways, I think that's kind of a shame. You were in the business for quite a long time, 27 years, uh, if I've got my, uh, if my memory serves correctly. Uh, how did you know when it was time to pack it in? Yeah, I uh, went from planting trees to uh, managing crews and uh, then supervising large projects. I finally became a, a contractor that uh, specialized on uh, highly technical heli situations uh, along the coastal inlets in Vancouver Island uh, during storm season. Um, because early in the season is when the coast has to get planted. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And so 
I, I must have went through 20 helicopter pilots as a contractor. It was so hard finding a competent pilot that had a certain boldness, but also a really good sense of safety and um, had a lot of close calls with the helicopter. Um, some of them on a daily basis. Uh, but, you know, you go into these situations, you don't think about that and you expect that you're going to have close calls as just part of the, as part of the game. And, um, you know, aware of the dangers involved, not really paying attention, not thinking about it after the fact, until one episode, it was above Harrison Lake, and I had, just, I had just joined my business partner to help him finish off a contract uh, for Canfor, I think it was. And we were planting above Harrison Lake. It was a really steep helicopter block, and we were flying in a uh, uh, 206 Long Ranger helicopter. It had a really wide blade rotation, so we had to be really careful where we attempted to land. And this was a particularly steep block mm -hmm. with really high stumps. There were helipads all throughout it, and every pad that we attempted to touch down on um, was surrounded by stumps that were simply too high. And uh, it was getting really frustrating because it was looking as if we wouldn't be able to land anywhere on this setting. And uh, the pilot spotted one helipad at the top of the block, and he started to come down slowly on the helipad. And there's a bubble right at your feet where you can see below the helicopter of what's coming towards you on the surface of the ground. And I'm looking below me and I can see the pad is about three feet away. And I look up and there's this massive stump that's about a foot away from the blade rotation. Pilot didn't spot it. <laughs> and we had a horrible rotor strike and we spun out of control. Uh, the pilot yelled out, we're going down. I had one hand on my seatbelt and one on the uh, latch to the door. And I had two tree planters that were tucked into the back of the helicopter that uh, they were just so, you know, bulked up with gear that there is no way they'd be able to extricate themselves. Right. And uh, I was I was literally on the verge of leaping out because I knew if we had uh, crashed that we would just roll in a molten ball of fire and metal. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we recovered and we were able to land the machine uh, safely. But that's when I started to feel like, uh, you know, I, I need to find an exit. These uh, close calls are just starting to rack up too tightly. Right, right. How did this book come about, Highballer? When did you think about writing it and, uh, and how did that come together for you? You know, I'm kind of kicking myself for not having uh, written it 10 years ago or even mm. more. Uh, I'd have three books out by now. Um, um, you know, it was actually, I was visiting some, I had actually just met some friends camping. It was a walk-in uh, campsite at Nement Lake on Vancouver Island. And um, they were new friends. He was a, a Ministry of Forest Officer, MOF. Mm -hmm. We used to call them the... Uh, the forest service we used to call them as planters the nervous service mm -hmm. uh but uh i i met them camping and uh, they started talking about uh this tree planting book um that they had read and how they really enjoyed it and uh 
uh, they were actually on their second reading. They liked it so much, and I relate a few of my stories, some of the uh, some of the better ones, and they kind of inspired me. They said, "You know what? You should really write a book about these events." And I thought, "Yeah, might make sense." I I honestly didn't think there was an audience for these stories. Hmm. Yeah, I was quite wrong. And uh, you've been proven wrong, <laughs> I would imagine, uh, since uh, since then. Something like tree planting, you never know whether you're going to see the people you spend a contract with again. You know, I think that goes for uh, friendship struck or, or romances uh, in these tree planting uh, time periods. Writing this book, has it brought you back into touch with any of these people that you might have lost touch with years ago? Strangely enough, uh, yeah, some of the romantic interests that I uh, recounted have contacted me. Um, I wasn't prepared for that. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that <laughs> it's kind of exciting and bewildering uh, all at the same time. Um, I am talking to people that uh, are in the book from the past. Um, mainly, be, I, I might have made the first contact just because I wanted to tighten up some details mm-hmm. um, on what went on or get their impression um, of some of the events that I described. And uh, it's it's kind of uh, brought my ex-business partner and I back together. Um, and we didn't end on the best of terms. So we're, we've sort of come back together. He's read the book. Uh, he's a real literary type uh, and appreciated what I had to say. And uh, yeah, yeah, there's been some contact there for sure. Hmm. Uh, this is maybe a tough one, but how has uh, tree planting changed you? You know, how, how has it uh, shaped you as a person? Well, I was always, you know, athletic as a kid. And I always uh, sort of prided myself in being able to, you know, throw a good touchdown pass or, um, you know, pitch a good game. And those those successes, you know, you you sort of expect they don't have lasting impacts except maybe back you up whenever you need to express yourself, uh, athletically. Um, with tree planting, I learned that I could gain more than just a second wind, you know, that I, I could push myself to an extreme that I, I never really thought possible, but also to endure, um, you know, that kind of punishment for months on end, and um, it also, in, in changing me, in the off season, very often I would just, um, you know, take a couple months off and get fat and lazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of that high baller status, you know, I would allow myself to heal after a long season. And by heal, I mean sleeping 18 hours a day for two weeks um, and then starting to get back into motion. But yeah, I would start to train as soon as that healing process was over and I'd get back into hardcore cycling and hiking. And if it was winter, uh, cross country skiing. So it made me super active. Um, yeah, that was the main, main thing. Mm. So you've got another book in the works do you? a high baller too. Yeah, I do. The first one kind of ends in 1990. I started in 1983. People might ask, you know, how can you possibly remember so much detail? And, uh, and I've done a little research into that, too. I have what's called, uh, I believe it's hyperthymesic memory. 
And uh, I can just simply go back to a date, press play, and these events play like, these memories play like movies um, without effort. And um, yeah, it's kind of crazy. So the second book will pick up where I left off in 1990 in the final years of my days as an actual tree planter. And we'll continue on when I started uh, managing large crews and uh, uh, becoming a uh, tree planting contractor. Fantastic. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it and, and enjoyed this. It was a real pleasure, Martin. Thanks for the invite. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Greg, his book, Highballer, is out now through Harbor Publishing. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. <laughs>